Welcome back to the dark side. I'm your host, hey! Bria. Hey! Oh, fuck. You fucking. Hold on. I'm coming over there. Jesus you, Christ. You fucking said. I forgot. You said it was my episode. I didn't. I, didn't, I have a whole thing ready. I, I didn't realize. I'm taking over. It was already this week. Taking over, boys. Alright, strap on your nut cups, because it's gonna get real. This is Dark Adaptation. Hit it! So I get to ask you, how are you feeling today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I didn't even get to go, hi. <laughs> oh, there's always time. Are you ready? <laughs> right, we're going to do it. Welcome to Dark Adaptation. I'm your host, Dyson. Brianna's here with us today. Hi. Hi. Fuck. <laughs> this is weird. I know, isn't it? This is throwing you off. It's so weird. I think how our listeners might feel. I have to feel. kind of give over control and i not... Listen, I got... I don't know how I'm... Uh, I got a good one today, so... And it's a ghost story, baby! It's what we've been waiting for! Woo! Woo! Yeah. And guess what? What? You know how you always apologize for there being a lot of history in it? Well, you know. I... Yeah, I'm like, oh, sorry for all the context and all the history, but it's important! I gotta paint a picture! You bet your ass is important. That's why I'm bringing in the history on this one, so that you can get some good context for some spooky stories. Whoa. Because today, we're covering the hauntings of Parliament Hill. Parliament Hill sits on the centerpiece of the nation's capital, proudly. So much so that while burgeoning cities usually expand outwards, Ottawa in its early years converged from a series of isolated communities into itself to form a whole. And at its heart lies three buildings standing resolutely against the cityscape almost as though it were rooted in place. What once was home to our primeval forest of beech and hemlock, dense cedar swamps, and a beaver meadow, Parliament Hill's Gothic Revival buildings and its stately Library of Parliament stand ceremoniously on the cliffside that cascades down to the majestic Ottawa River. Am I taking you there? That was fucking beautiful. I'm about to slide off this couch. Damn right. There's more where that came from. There's 11 pages where that came from. Mm. Yeah. From September to June each year, the Caroliner rings the bell of the Peace Tower, which stands 98 meters tall and affixed to the Parliament's center block. In July and August, in the middle of the day, the bells ring out for a full hour long in celebration. Mm -hmm. If you were to approach Parliament Hill from the street, you'd see a long pathway that extends all the way to the steps of this six-story building. Parallel to you on both sides are the east and west block, 
They look like cathedrals, each four-story buildings designed in the same high Victorian Gothic style as the others and adorned with elaborate stone carvings, gargoyles, and grotesques. Grotesques, by the way, is a art term. It means to evoke emotion. And at your feet, the centennial flame, a fountain with granite shields along its edges, each representing a province or territory. And in the middle is a fire that perpetually burns as a symbol of their unity. In fact, because the flame, the water in the fountain never freezes, even in the dead of winter. And the money people toss into that fountain goes to the Centennial Flame Research Award, which, I love this part, is given to a person with disability to enable him or her to conduct research and prepare a report on the contributions of one or more Canadians with disabilities to the public life of Canada or the activities of Parliament. Giving them a little shout out. Yeah. I love it. Suffice it to say, there's an air of pomp and pageantry about the place. Its rich history is on full display for all. Its ceremonies and symbols there to remind you of the ambitious young nation. So why is it that when some of us set foot on these grounds, we're swiftly overcome by an oppressive sadness, and others, equally as sensitive to this strange presence, are reeled into a fit of murderous rage? I'm not sad right now. Yeah, you're a little spooked. So warns the Algonquin artist Janet Kopanishan of the 200-year curse on Parliament Hill. <gasps> Kopanishan tells the story that has been handed down through seven generations of women about a group of Algonquin families camped near where the Rideau Canal now empties into the Ottawa River. They had been returning from their traditional hunting grounds north of Manawaki, which is in Quebec. You see... Parliament Hill may look ancient, but the real history and its ruins lie well beneath its foundations. Because before there was a Parliament Hill, and even before there was an Ottawa, or Bytown as it was known before 1850, there was Barrack Hill, a military outpost in the early 19th century and situated on the unceded territory of the Algonquin First Nation. Now, this story is said to have happened between 1820 and 1850. Nobody can say for certain. According to Capnician, one evening, the soldiers from the barracks descended down the hill and close to where the Algonquin camp was set up. Around the same time, a teenage girl of roughly 15 years of age had gone missing near the bottom of the bluff, just along the river's shoreline, and her mother was out searching for her. She would find her, but immediately the mother knew something was not right. Oh no. Here's what happened next in the artist's words from an interview on APTN's Nation to Nation. Oh. Quote, she was in the distance, sitting straight up with her hair blowing in the wind. Mm. The custom at the time was that the native woman never cut her hair, but she wasn't allowed to let it loose. Uh -oh. She had to put it in braids and put it in a bun. And so, when she saw her daughter's hair blowing in the wind, she knew something was wrong. Oh, no. Meanwhile, the soldiers were seen retreating back up the hill. Oh, God. They had raped and <gasps> murdered. <laughs> I was so... Yeah. I knew it, and I didn't want... It was so beautiful. The scene was so beautiful, and I knew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
They had raped and murdered the 15-year-old girl and then impaled her on the tree stump so as to appear she was sitting upright. What the fuck? This is why her hair was blowing in the wind. Now, this is where the story takes a more surprising turn. Oh, okay, more surprising. Okay, here we go. One would think that the abuse and graphic murder of this young woman would instill fury and a deep desire for vengeance among the Algonquin camp. And surely it did, as members of the party prepared to attack the British soldiers. But the chief... It was chief, the British that did this? Yes. Back at that time, we didn't have Canada as we know it yet. We had the British <sighs> in uh, what is known as Upper Canada. And it was only because of the actions of the chief of the Algonquin group, who was successful in holding his men back from attacking the soldiers in Barrack Hill. One could speculate that in doing so, he managed to save several lives that day and spare both sides from what would certainly be a gruesome bloodshed. Mm-hmm. But according to the story Caponetian heard growing up as a child, remember, this was a story carried by several generations and one she had heard herself from her grandmother. Yeah, I was going to ask, is she indigenous? Yes, she is. Okay, okay. The spirit of the young woman who died would not let that death go unpunished. Oh, Quote, because of the way she died, she herself would take care of those men and that no good would ever come of this land. (gasps) And so the land of Parliament Hill extending down to what's now the locks of the Rideau Canal, remained cursed by the spirit of the Algonquin girl who's said to still wander its grounds. Oh my god, that's spooky. I know, right? You know what? She... It's the least that she could do at this point is haunt the land. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. One of the interesting things, uh, I'm going to divert from the story briefly... Uh, in listening to this, listening to Caponetian talk about this story, I did want to put in a little section there uh, on a point she mentioned where she said that this story itself shows kind of the grace of the Algonquin at the time. Uh, yeah. not to Not to take this tragedy, and I use that word lightly because of what happened. I, it's, not a, it's not like it's an accident. Um, Oh, no. It was cold-blooded. Yeah, but to have the resolve and the grace not to turn it into bloodshed. Yeah, because just so many people, the British themselves, would have taken it as an opportunity to be like, well, look what fucking happened. Mm -hmm. We got to take this into our own hands now. But like you were saying, like the, was it the chief? The chief. The The chief chief of the group. So was like, um, uh, 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 uh. We're yeah, way beyond this. Yeah, and if if you're wondering why the family was uh, moving from one area to another, it's part of their traditional hunting grounds. Um, so they would go from one spot to another as, mm-hmm. as part of a tradition, almost. Uh, and that's based on what Caponetian was talking about and a few other articles as well that I read because I want to be very careful about that kind of stuff. But but which is also why every time I tell this story, you will notice that I am bringing in quotes from Caponetian because. Back then, um, what we have, we have a tradition of written history, and they have a tradition of store or yeah, oral, oral history. stories. Yeah, oral stories. storytelling. It's a giant part of their culture, um, almost like a 
that's an important part of it, to, especially with the whole aspect of you and your people, your family, your friends, anyone you love getting together. And it's almost ritualistic to sit together and hear your ancestors, your elders talk to you, tell you these significant stories. It's a, a very important part of the culture. Yeah, exactly. And also there is also like, there is of course other forms, you know, like, um, you know, painted works as Caponesian is an artist, of course. And, you know, that speaks to arts that we would find as well as, you know, the stereotypical totem pole kind of thing. That's the average one that you would initially think about. And there's a whole bunch. It, it, it's literally every single aspect of their culture. The way they, they do their hair, the way they make their clothes, the way they make their headpieces, their headdresses, their shoes, the, the intricate beading, everything. It's so, it's beautiful. And everything is significant and meaningful and, and goes back to the the roots of their tribes of their culture of their community and mm -hmm. it is so lovely and i'm gonna i just need to some it really does I gotta ask a question here yeah take it away from how beautiful most of it is uh-huh did you say that this girl what was she 15 she's approximately 15 years of age yeah so she was murdered mm -hmm. and then impaled to the point that she was in a seated position on the stump. They they impaled her so that she was sitting upright. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's just. It's rough. Terrifying. It's, it's a, it was a hard one to read, and um, you know, I was glad that I stuck with it because there are a couple other articles as well that it's, she does divulge some additional it's information. It's just so scary. That's scary. That's Important story. Well. I agree. Now. If you haven't heard this story, know that you're not alone. I never ever have heard that, and it is de devastating. Mm -hmm. In fact, while the story endured through seven generations, nobody else knew it. Whoa. Ottawa didn't know it, the government didn't know it, and Canada didn't know it. So in 1985, Caponation captured the story on canvas in what she titled The Spirit behind Parliament Hill. And I want you to focus on the actual title of that right now, because it's going to be important and it's going to have some contrast in a minute. It depicted a figure of a nude woman propped on a stump of a birch tree with her hair blowing in the wind. Beyond her is the Algonquin camp, followed by trees extended all the way to the outline of modern day Parliament Hill. Remember Barrack Hill was there at the time. She's making a bit of a statement. 1827 is when Barrack Hill was around. So this is around 1827. Between 1820s and 1850s is mm. the approximate time. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm. There's no exact date because it's a mm -hmm. story carried on. So Caponetian painted this. And then she sold the painting to the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, which is in Quebec, which is by the way, if you're not from Canada, right beside Ontario. So the province right next to where Ottawa and Parliament Hill currently stands. She sold this painting thinking it would be displayed prominently and introduced more people to its story, which is reasonable because it is a quite large museum dedicated to Canadian history. And this is obviously a foundational story of Canada as well as the Algonquin Nation. So instead 
The painting was placed in storage where it stayed to this day. <gasps> oh yeah. my, when did she paint this? 1985. Oh my God. And so they still have it and mm -hmm. it is in storage. Yeah. And what really got me was they did talk to the guy who purchased it. And who you purchased know, it? I don't remember his name was exactly. Was he part of Parliament? He was part of the uh, museum. And I, I guess he was a curator. And he does recall purchasing it. And he goes on about how it tells a striking story. And that itself is why he purchased it. But then he goes on to say, I don't recall making any promises about displaying it. Well, that's despicable. Why the fuck is, are you, as a curator, taking somebody's art paying for somebody's art which in turn means you're paying for the story behind what this piece is telling mm -hmm. and then saying oh, it was striking but not striking enough for me to yeah. ever display it in, yeah he basically was like museum yeah he basically said i love it i'd love to have it i'm gonna put it in the shed that's fucking disgusting yeah well here's the good story capanetian sold this painting but fortunately the story does not live in a single portrait and in 2004 Capanetian created another, mm. the tragic history behind the parliament building. She slowly turned it from something that just simply put the story in context with the parliament building, obviously having a statement, to now point, portraying this as the tragedy it is. And essentially saying, fuck you guys right. for this. This is a continued tragedy and it's a continued outrage. And I don't blame her. No. And the painting is similar to the previous one, but it is still unique. Now the woman who's sitting on the birch stump is actually holding her own image of her sitting on a birch stump in a sphere, almost like a world. Mm. So she's almost holding her world as a, almost a spirit peering into this own image. Mm. And there is uh, another figure who is almost floating with her hair in the wind uh looming over parliament hill oh my goodness yeah. is this her own personal work like is this is she, her this is her work she didn't try and or like nobody tried to buy it or she didn't sell it or anything it's mm. her own well this is where it gets a little sad again oh god uh, this is now, up and down yeah now if you visit the and bear with me please i'm sorry it's a odd spelling of a of a cultural center but it's the kitagon zb anishinaabe cultural center Ooh. i did much better than i thought i would but i'm sure i didn't get it wholly <laughs> right pretty good you can see this painting okay or well rather you can see a print of it well where's the painting well that's the question capanetian was a starving artist oh. so she sold the original birch bark painting for a pair of eyeglasses <gasps> And uh, I love this. Apparently, her daughter gave her help for it because she said this is a very important painting. It sounds And she beautiful. was doing her thesis on it. Yeah. But she needed glasses, so she had to sell it. But what I do like about it is Capanation did make a point. The story isn't the canvas. No matter what you do to that painting, no matter how much you try to hide it, even though it in her in her words she believes it deserves to be displayed from the window with parliament hill behind it with the woman and her back turned to it despite not doing that the story still lives on and that 
painting was remade. Um, so I, I do love that part. That I she love just it basically... too. Plus it, it, it goes back to the whole roots of how this painting even came to be. It was an oral story. It's oral history in her culture passed down to her that she in turn made into visual, uh, visual art. But at the end of the day, it's still about telling the story and it's, where the story even came from in the first place. It's perfect because in painting it, she told the story. Yes. But in her actions, she did add to it, which normally I think would be detrimental to a, a regular artist. You would think, I don't want to be part of the story. I don't want to change the story. But in Caponetian's actions, the part of the story that she added was resilience. And she essentially just said, no matter what you do, this story will persist. <laughs> and before we move on, one last word from Caponetian and Caponetian's uh, kind of uh, restatement of what her grandmother had to say, who passed down the story to her. Quote, Caponetian says that the story was important to my grandmother. She remembered that. She said, if you go to the back of parliament, you can hear her cry. If you're unbalanced at all, you'll feel the emotions. You'll feel the hurt and the pain and you'll become suicidal. Or you'll feel the anger and you'll want to hurt somebody. Vengeance. Yeah. So that's the story that she passed down. And she warns to take heed of that story and not to be quick to dismiss it. Pointing to a number of high profile deaths and suicides near the hill and near the nearby Majors Hill Park. Now, I'm not going to dive into um, suicides in a specific area. I, I don't want to make that um, the narrative. But she does point that there is something going on in Parliament Hill. And when I did look at it, there is. Maybe not initially where she first thought. Now, with the 200-year curse still fresh in your mind, I'd like to wind things back just a little bit. Try not to focus too much on the curse in present day. Instead, remember that I mentioned this whole tragedy unfolded at the bottom of Barrack Hill. Yeah. Where the bluff meets the Ottawa River and before the construction of Ottawa's Rideau Canal. Just after the War of 1812, Britain and America were on rocky terms, to say the least. And the St. Lawrence River, a lifeline to Canadians, by the way, it, it helped ship troops from Kingston to Ottawa, that's kind of a big deal back then, mm -hmm. um, was seen as particularly vulnerable to an American invasion. And guys, you were trying to invade us, admit it. <laughs> yeah. To protect it meant assigning one of the greatest challenges ever given to an engineer at the time. Ever, to build a canal that in the end would amount to 47 masonry locks and 52 dams dug and blasted by hand oh. and the man for the job lieutenant colonel john by of the royal engineers now remember war of 1812 canada was a place not a country yet 
it was part mm -hmm. of the royal empire upon which the sun never sets. <laughs> we'll put Sat on myself. <laughs> Sat on myself. <laughs> yeah, we were not a country until 1867. Oh, yeah. Wild. Mm -hmm. I know, it's nuts. Now, left turn. Lieutenant. Left turn. <laughs> so it's very hard because they say lieutenant. It's lieutenant, by the way. Um, what? Yeah, if you go to the U.S., they have lieutenants. Yeah. If you go to Britain or or Canada, it's a lieutenant. The fuck? You does don't that pronounce mean? it as it's spelt, which makes me feel like I'm in the wrong. But damn it, we were here first. It's our words. It's our language. Fuck off. It's like when you see the word, <laughs> like when you're like here, Colonel. And then you're like, that's how you spell it? Pardon me? Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned that because it's actually Lieutenant Colonel By. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and it's spelled B-Y, um, which made it particularly hard for me to catch oh, I, I spelling spell it mistakes. I Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> you know, it's back in the day. You never know. <laughs> Got a story about that later for you, too. Lieutenant Colonel <laughs> By was sent to Canada and began his work on September 21st, 1826, and took about five and a half years to complete. On May 28th, 1832, the first steamboat named the Rideau, carrying Colonel By's family and officers, so sailed from Kingston, Ontario. Thank you. Okay. And passed through the Rideau Canal the next day. Oh. Yeah. This, it's a hell of a this feat. Was fucking hauling ass it was hauling ass <laughs> was yeah like, we have places to be yeah just to be clear driving in a modern day car takes about like what four hours to do that from kingston yeah yeah well, well you got a three if you're speeding it's still way. hard you're going by the speed of water either way <laughs> speed, <laughs> speed of, of water water yeah you heard it here first um so in the end by had pulled off the unimaginable and was celebrated in canada with a legendary status he had successfully pulled off one of the largest most ambitious engineering feats in the history of new canada in fact the development of the canal put what would later become the capital of the country on the map it was that big a deal mm -hmm. a clerk working on the project james corbett worked with Lieutenant Colonel By and said this of the endeavor. And I wish I had the other quote. Someone had a real hard on for this guy and called mm. him a stately figure oh, and a perfect God. representation of a British general. Oh, my, anyway, my trousers. But this was not James Corbett. James Corbett said up to the year 1827, the banks of the River Ottawa were a complete wilderness. And in the month of March in the year the first tree was cut, for the purpose of clearing the forest where the town now stands. The town that sprung from its developments would be named in his honor. Welcome to Bytown. Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever heard anything more original. Yeah, I know. Fuck. <laughs> now, there are a few important details left out of this brief account. Yes, the Rideau Canal would provide a secure shipping route between Montreal, Quebec, and Kingston, Ontario. But its creation was dogged by death and ailment from the very beginning. Like I said, the Rideau Canal was no easy feat, and the men who created it had to build it by hand. 
It's estimated that 2,000 to 4,000 men worked on the canal per year. That's a lot of people. So much so that the few local laborers available would not be enough to complete the project. That's what I was going to say. I was like, if this, if they're building this project in a place that uh, Buddy is saying is essentially a wilderness, mm-hmm. then of course you're not going to have that resources up there. You're not going to have people. Mm-hmm. So like, where are all of these people coming from? Well, Colonel Buy had to bring some 2,000 men from Ireland. Oh, casual. <laughs> now I should really mention. Put them on that same steamboat that was hauling fucking ass. Well, I should mention that the Irish at the time were treated by the British much like slaves. Incredibly indispensable. Yeah. It would only be a few years later when we they kind of created and hot take the uh, potato famine that killed a fuck ton of them. Okay. Well, they took everything from them. Oh, yeah. Everything. All of their goods. It wasn't just potatoes. Yep. So... Meanwhile, Colonel Bai and his engineers were stationed at the early 19th century military outpost, Barrack Hill. Okay. And if the 200-year curse is to believed, it doesn't exactly bode well for Bai and his men. No, or the construction area, or literally everything to yeah. do with the land. Yeah, exactly. Keep in mind, she said, the land, not the hill. The land. Yep. It's not just about the hill. Mm-hmm. She was, and this girl was found at the bottom of the hill. Around this exact time, actually. Yeah. Right? So carving out the 202 kilometers of the canal was perilous work by no stretch of the imagination. Men dug the soil barefooted with picks and shovels. To blast the rock, they had to drill holes with hand chisels and then fill them with gunpowder. They had felled countless trees and all this while braving the unforgivable elements of the Canadian frontier. It gets cold. Accidents claim the lives of workers at any moment. Trees landing on log cutters, gunpowder explosions (laughs) eviscerating unsuspected workers. But what claimed most lives sat dormant and was waiting a mere feet from barrack hill that cursed the ground oh my god i have a question Mm -hmm. why are they barefoot because back thank you (laughs) this is how deep i went okay (laughs) so back in the day we didn't have vulcanized rubber which meant we didn't have rubber shoes which means if you're handling gunpowder with pickaxes and blasting it by hand, you bet your ass you are not walking in there with what is essentially leather shoes with metal nails in the shoe. You could cause a spark off a rock that'll blow you sky high. Oh my God, so that's going there barefoot in this mm-hmm. fucking rigid land in the freezing cold. Mm-hmm. All while they got no potatoes. No potatoes. (laughs) No potatoes. Anyway, please tell us about the land. Okay. A great invisible sickness permeated from the swamplands just next to where Colonel Bai and his men were working. Oh, God. Those fortunate not to have drowned in it, and yes, there were a few, were wasted away with disease you'd expect to encounter in the thick jungles of the tropic, much less the Canadian forest. Is it yellow fever? I don't think so. Oh, 
but you're on the right track. Oh. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll find out it is. I don't know the other names of it. In the summer, it spread through the ranks like wildfire. Men were dropping left and right. So many men became sick in the summer of 1828 that work had to be shut down for weeks on end and the air became nauseous with the smell of that of a cadaverous animal. Ugh. Even Colonel By himself was struck down by the fever and just barely survived. When? What time of year was this? This would be in the summer. So hot and stinky. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's foul. No one's wearing shoes. No one's wearing shoes. Like a smelly ass feet. Yeah. No one was going, what are those? Because <laughs> those? if they were, they were worried to get blown up. So, well. yeah. So, you see, nobody expected to encounter malaria while building a canal between Kingston and Montreal. Is that caused by mosquitoes? Sure is. Fuck. Yep. And it was. The mosquitoes, and especially up north, were and, a serious problem. Well, yeah, and around there and how humid it gets. It's yep. so humid around here. They called it swamp fever, which thrived in the humid conditions and poor sanitation, raged through the work site, spread by mosquitoes, like you mentioned, and overwhelmed the hospital on Barrack Hill. Yeah. The number of deaths is not known exactly, but after just five years, it's said to have claimed as many as 1,000 workers in the construction of the canal. Damn. Uh, and yeah. and, and it, the fact that it would only be seasonal, too. So, yeah. like, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And keep in mind, this also includes... We'll find out later that it's very confirmed. Trees falling on people because the lumbers, oh, yeah. the the canal also, especially on the St. Lawrence River, also was a huge lumber kind of area. They would they would have lumber jacks all over that water. Mm-hmm. And actually, that area was at one point the number one supplier to the Royal Navy in Britain. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, like well, yeah said, plus like you had deep. said it was just this huge wilderness essentially yeah. so it's really cool to see the pictures too because those logs just go floating through the water and it's yeah. crazy because it's just all logs all right the men and women and children who died from all of this going on were buried in the local cemeteries and typically marked with a wooden cross that would since have rotted away yes this reminds me of tom thompson yeah and as for Colonel Bai, which, uh, while celebrated as a hero in Canada, he received no honors in his home country. In fact, he was publicly humiliated for overspending the canal and uh, not a soul spoken in his defense. He returned to England in late 1832 and uh, a broken man in poor health. He died only three years later. Okay, that's devastating. I mean, I know that th- there's so many problems with with the british you know and the invasion and uh takeover and all of that but mm-hmm. the fact that around this time when he's here and he's he's building these canals and engineering all these things and around here people are like it's revolutionary it's it's amazing this is a feat that is gonna be in the textbooks and he goes back home and people are like you're a loser yeah if you look back at it they gave him an impossible job he actually achieved there are um also i should mention there were other engineers while he was doing this um who he had uh, essentially instructed to build these canals 
there were a few who came back and said, it's impossible. It's not something you can do. And, he and he's like, still pulled it off. Yeah, he found a way me. around it. I came here to kick gum and chew ass. And I'm all out of ass. <laughs> That's what he said when he showed up to kick him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So he did. So he went all the way, did all this kind of shit. Basically saved Canada from an invasion. Keep in mind. And he went back home and was a joke. And he died after. Talk about bad luck. Yes, yes, yes. Hey. Oh. You know what else is bad luck? Um, opening an umbrella indoors. Sure is. You know what else is bad luck? Breaking a mirror. Hell yeah. You know what else? Okay, tell me. LRT projects. elaborate okay well because in 2013 <laughs> when ottawa wanted to build a light rail transit system along queen street just 200 meters from parliament hill it's like the street where you get to parliament hill it's, it's that street essentially is this like a streetcar yeah okay yeah well uh they found uh themselves continuously unearthing bodies from an old bytown graveyard um what year was this again 2013. Oh, fuck! Yeah, very recent. Yeah. Jesus! So what if these, this would have been all of the people that died? It would have been a lot of them. Oh, of like all of the fever and the construction accidents. I gotcha, I okay, gotcha. Okay, all right. Okay. Um, when the construction crews first <laughs> found the bodies, they discovered the remains had been disturbed, carted around, and unceremoniously dumped as many as 12 times. That is fucked My up. town was rough. An anthropologist with the Canadian Museum of History. Yay, we're back. Canadian Museum of History. Love you guys' work, except for a few things about the painting. Um, had the chance to examine the 79 Ooh. people who <laughs> once belonged to the old cemetery. She confirmed that the remains showed a hard life, likely working as laborers of the land in the lumber trade or constructing the Rideau Canal. No shit, none of them had shoes. Yeah. The cause of death was typically malaria. Cholera also spread around oh. that time. It was really rampant in Canada. Oh, the poops. Yep. But some also showed signs of drowning. <gasps> there are a few that had trees fall on them as well. Forgotten and paved over, buried beneath our very feet in what was once the Barrack Hill Cemetery. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And just a reminder, if you didn't catch it the first time, the drowning was drowning in a swamp, which, by the way, was right next to Barrack Hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how many locks were they building in this canal again? 47? 47 and 52 dams. Oh. Which is a, a lot. And if you go and look at the pictures of it, when I say locks... I don't mean they just put a little bit of like concrete or like I guess at that time it'd be like cobblestone or something well, this into was the off water. Saint Lawrence, right? These are large structures. Yeah, this, yeah. It, it falls into the Saint Lawrence. Yeah, but it allows you to essentially go from Kingston straight to Ottawa and back, fuck. which is why it was such an important defensive maneuver for Canada at the time because 
there was a lot of talk at the time about Manifest Destiny oh, and Lord. how U.S. should just take Canada now, make it a part of their country, and be done with it. Manifest Destiny is very old school, I guess. It sh it's been sure around is. for a hot minute. Yeah, it has. Some 500 people were laid to rest on its grounds in the two decades before it was closed in 1845 in the name of progress and city building. Okay. So essentially they were running out of room. Those who could afford to rebury their loved ones did so at Sandy Hill, now known as McDonald Gardens Park. And it was incumbent upon the families at this time to physically move the dead themselves rather than the city magistrate, which would do it nowadays. Woof. So keep that in mind, an undertaking. 2,000 roughly Irish immigrants to Canada who did not have that money, um, their families were expected to move them or... They were just left for God knows who to manhandle them about 12 times. Yeah, they were real manhandled. Uh, never found those potatoes either. I could say that I'm part Irish. I shouldn't say that because <laughs> it's still terrible to say. I'm 3% Irish. <laughs> and 2% Russian, I hear. <laughs> yeah, Prussian. Yeah, okay. I, I got an updated ancestry report. Oh. That's Eastern European, so it's Prussia. Probably Ukrainian. It could be. Mm. Anyway, it's not about me. Yeah. I'm at the homes. <laughs> but the undignity of these people's resting places has now come to an end. In 2017... Ottawa held public visitations to allow people to pay their respects to those left behind. Approximately 200 people came to those visitations, and finally on October 2nd of Canada's 150th year as a country, the remains, now confined to newly made pine caskets, were loaded into horse-drawn carriages and recommitted to their final resting place at Beechwood Cemetery, plot 106. I thought it was really nice that they did yeah, the carriages yeah, it's very, and the pine. It's like, it is an act of respect in itself. Just yeah. like, and there, there was doodle. Yeah, and there was an, another visit, uh, set of visitations because like I said, there was there was around 70 some, 79, and this was the first 52 batch, but... Um, a lot they only found one body fully intact as a as a skeleton the a lot of it had been either deteriorated from you know being underground in uh, i'm sorry to say it a parking lot um and all you know being moved around 12 times there was a lot of kids there was fetuses apparently there were um, adults that were crushed by trees so they were all scattered yeah may or maybe it was a mess Maybe in in all of this chaos of construction and whatever, maybe they totally lost a limb. Yeah, yeah. Um, they said that they did try and be very careful. Um, they said that they were they were careful with the men and women they found, but when it came to children, they knew that it was extra fragile. So apparently, they took the full plot of land to levy them out, mm -hmm. which I thought was very cool. Um, the other thing, too, is when they held the uh, visitations, um, a lot of the people that initially when they were going to go thought it would be kind of similar to an exhibit. And okay. you'll be pleasant to hear that 
when they walked in, they immediately were corrected to understand that this was very much a funeral I was service. Say, yeah. it's not look listen here, you want to be lucky Lou. Yeah. It's not about you entertaining yeah. yourself. Yeah. And it's, they were it's finally, after hundreds of years, putting people who deserve to be put to rest to rest. Yeah. Exactly. It was instead of being it, under a fucking parking lot. Yeah. Exactly. So I should also add that in bringing the remains to Beechwood Cemetery, the city was reuniting the souls laid to rest in the original Barrack Hill plot as well, mm -hmm. or rather most of them. Remember, those who could afford to move their loved ones after the original graveyard closed did so to McDonald Gardens, which remained open from 1840 to the 1870s. It was only then that the remains were moved to Beechwood and the plot was raised and the tombstones cleared in 1911 to create a park for John A. Macdonald, Canada's first prime minister, leaving potentially hundreds of unclaimed souls behind. Why are they moving these graveyards so much so that was the rich people who were able to afford it but moved why, them there but, and then they were just like sorry they raised it but why do you have to move it anyway it's, it it all seems to kind of stem down down to space like i said this city was unlike other cities so it like, didn't uh, expand uh, outwards we have an agenda it we expanded would like... inwards towards the center it's okay. yeah they said there was a lot of hamlets or just little communities yeah, and they grew odd. inwards it's first totally reverse from most places you exactly get, like, any like town of the history that there's always the downtown core that is like grids mm -hmm. and you can see where it starts building outward from it so yeah weird that it went the opposite way yeah but i still find it odd yet fascinating that for some reason they had to move these graveyards so often like it's just fucking weird yeah like imagine i'm just we i just get a google alert and it's like hey alert everybody do you have a loved one buried in so in such and such cemetery well get ready you're gonna have to move them because we've decided this is the perfect place for a costco mm -hmm. or in this case a, a park uh 1911 <laughs> and unable to escape the fate of those who remained beneath the surface of what was once known as barrack hill they had the exact same fate as the people in the initial cemetery that they started digging up. But at least their souls stayed in the ground, which appears to be more than we can say for some of the other souls at this time. Yeah. Yeah. In the short distance between Parliament Hill and the gorgeous towering building of the Chateau Fairmont, which, you know, towards the end, let's cover that. Remind. Okay. Resides the Bytown Museum. Built in 1827 and officially Ottawa's oldest stone structure, this three-story building served as the British military's storehouse and treasury, while Colonel By and his men worked on the construction of the Rideau Canal. Its official name is the Commissariat, and it was used to store provisions, money, alcohol, and black powder. Oh, yeah. Alcohol and black powder. Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting that you mentioned uh, the bare feet. The, <laughs> oh, I couldn't get over it. There is a section of this 
building in the commissariat that does have a different flooring specifically because it did store black powder so that you couldn't spark it again it also did have um a section of it dedicated to uh i'm gonna call him a blacksmith i'm sure there's a more technical term but he was responsible for the barrels this was on surprisingly enough the second floor but he was um smithing metal so that he could create mm -hmm. the barrels and stuff to store things so that was just a kind of interesting tidbit and as a quick aside to the aside you can explore every floor of the commissariat on the Bytown Museum website in what I would say would be one of the best virtual tours I have ever seen. Ooh. Um, there were like sections where I was like, man, you have a display, a, a glass cabinet display. I wish I could look over to it. But sections of the virtual tour include um, recreating some of the items that you could see in 3d models that you can then interact with oh my it God. included uh sections where if you hovered your mouse over a several of these where the video would play and a tour guide would start talking to you about the importance of certain items and what it meant for the town at the time so for example when i was talking about that um irish population that was brought in um, it actually created almost like a Gangs of New York situation. <laughs> they were called the Shiners, and they were like the um, Irish Mafia. They had a very violent history and a way of doing things. I don't um, think that you were doing a virtual tour. I think that you were just playing a Canadian video game. <laughs> it was called Call of Duty A. <laughs> yeah. And they, they said right before you get up to the second floor using the hay barrel shaft they just turn to you and they say remember no irish oh my god <laughs> that didn't happen i it was, know it was that bad but it wasn't that bad um but you may you want to you weren't in an airport no i was not in an airport <laughs> i was maybe in a harbor <laughs> But you may actually want to hold off on that whole virtual tour, uh, especially if you have your heart set on getting an interactive tour from, let's say, a resident of the 19th century. Oh, shit. Glenn Shackleton is the chairman of the board of directors for the Bytown Museum. He insists that something is living within the museum's oh displays. God. Oh my God. As you might have guessed, the Bytown Museum presides over a permanent collection of artifacts celebrating Ottawa's rich heritage, but it's not uncommon for visitors to experience a deep unease when peering into these displays. Oh Arguably, God. the most upsetting collection resides on the second floor. If you're alone, listen carefully. Guests have reported hearing the faint sound of a child crying. Looking around among the collection, a dress worn by a mourning widow or the death hand of Canada's first assassinated politician. You might lock eyes with a set of porcelain dolls no. said to be possessed by the spirits of young children. Fuck no. But don't feel too bad about interrupting their wailing. Evidently, they might just be a tad lonely. Because Aww. apparently, once you look them into the eye, one of them just might wink at you. Okay, uh, I, these are really mixed signals. 
you want mixed signals you go look at those porcelain dolls when i did the virtual tour they were not on display in fact a bunch of people started commenting on the museum's facebook page demanding to know where these dolls are well yeah and so then they like a key thing like then they they? shared it and they said don't worry they're safe here's a photo of them to set your nerves at ease um no it didn't and also they're storing them what are they at daycare there's do not store haunted porcelain porcelain (laughs) dolls okay let me just tell you they don't take kindly to that when it seems they're a tad lonely I was, yeah, what do we do with lonely people? Oh, I know, isolate them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These dolls, they're in quarantine. Pandemic's been rough on them. They look like they've gone through the ringer and the faces are distorted. And um, they are, what can I say? They are rough 19th century era porcelain dolls. I don't, I don't know what to tell you, people. It's scary. Just already not a fan. Yeah. There are, however, spirits who are quite clear about their disdain for visitors. Oh, good. Much of the activity seems to occur by the staircase no, and old you. vault. I knew you were going to say staircase. <laughs> no, thank you. Where people have reported being pushed, Ugh. grabbed, or tripped from behind when alone. Tripped. That seems to be a running theme with these important uh, stories. question. Mm-hmm. Where are you grabbed? Right I don't, in the tank. You know what? It doesn't specify, but I bet it's the tank. <laughs> Just yeah. real good scoop. It didn't say tickle. Tickle. So. It might dickle you, I don't know. (laughs) No, stop, it dickles. Perhaps a reminder not to dawdle around the location that once stored the gunpowder containers, alcohol, and yes, even Colonel Bai's strong box filled with his money. Oh, shit. Because if you do, you might just hear a disembodied voice shout at you, Get out! Get the fuck out of here! That's a nightmare. <laughs> but not surprisingly, most activity occurs after dark. And once oh. the museum closes its doors for the day. No. One night, Shackleton and three others were locking up when the sliding glass doors they had just closed began to shake violently as though something were rapping against it from the other side. What began as a faint rattle escalated to pounding as the door jolted vigorously at its hinges suddenly the shaking stopped and they heard heavy footsteps walking away from the other side of the door no a quick review of the security footage revealed nobody on the other side and there was multiple witnesses that saw this and heard this Mm Staff at the museum are no stranger to odd happenings. From the un- from the usual odd sound to the occasional in- uh, interaction with assumed guests, only to see their impossibly disappeared. Um, for example, there is one where someone working at the front desk recognized that a patron had walked past her into the other room. However, she did notice um, that they didn't come from the entrance. And she had never seen the guy come through the entrance. So when she walked over to approach the person, she said, sorry, um, you're not supposed to be in here. At which point, the individual didn't say a word, got up, and walked away. When she turned around, he was nowhere to be found. 
in a way that she would recognize. She looked in every yeah, she's direction. Like, Yo, I work here every single fucking day. I know exactly where you should be and she where I She knows exactly see you. who comes in and who leaves. And she recognized this person had never come in. He just was not where he was supposed to be. Ew. And he just got up and walked out. Woof. Mm -hmm. There's no shortage of ghoulish tales to tell. But when the group heard the same heavy footsteps now running straight towards them, it was enough to send them fleeing to the exit. Yes. Now, Amen. Shackleton and the staff believe these terrifying disturbances at the vault and with the door are the works of Duncan McNabb, the supply manager who worked at the commissary during the construction of the Rideau Canal in 1827. Oh. And it makes sense that he would be a little pushy when it comes to safeguarding his vault from these pesky young meddlers. But one has to wonder what his boss might think of his late night hijinks. Yes. Apparently, they have more in common than one might initially believe. They both had a porcelain doll collection. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. One night, again after closing time, Shackleton was speaking to a woman at the desk of the museum about the ghost of Duncan McNabb. However, maybe that was his grave mistake. Oh, God. You see, there is no building more aptly tied to the legacy of Duncan's proud boss, Lieutenant Colonel By, than this old storehouse. That's because a year before his return to England, a British parliamentary committee began to investigate into allegations of gross misspending based off expenditures of his project. Due to some shoddy estimate made by the Crown's, and by the way, the Crown is England, uh, prior to the commencement of the project, the government was under the false impression that the canal would cost a mere £169,000 <laughs> to construct. I'm sorry. They're like, this is an amazing feat. This can't be done. We're bringing in the best, but it'll probably be cheap, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> they they actually had three um, three estimates that it's this guy... Stupid. Yeah, they sent this guy over to go do an estimate. And so he did three based on the width depth of the canal that they would build and also the terrain he lowballed all three estimates but the government seeing these three lowballed estimates only saw three estimates they then falsely assumed that it would cost the lesser of the three of course so they were under the impression it would cost falsely, it was just hopeful yeah they were so they were essentially saying you have 169,000 pounds to construct or and this is where I introduce the question to my guest. What do you think <gasps> 169,000 pounds cost in nowadays back from 1832? Well, first I'd like Actually, to say that when you were saying like, oh, it's where, you know, Mr. Bai had his money. I was like, well, it wasn't even Canada yet. So I was wondering what sort of currency it was. Mm -hmm. So that answered that. It's... It's the crown's land, technically. Yeah, so it's and I pounds. should I should add, I calculated inflation by pounds, and then calculated the results into Canadian dollars. That's what I do too. If I'm mm -hmm. like when we were doing the um, Donald 
Cameron one and it was mm-hmm. technically Montreal, but it was CIA money, so it was US money. <laughs> then I was like doing all these different conversions. But yep. anyway, 169,000 pounds in 1827 is 3.1 million dollars. No. Too much? Not even close. Too too little? Yeah. Okay. 31 million dollars. Okay, that's that's over. Well, actually, yeah, that's over. So the middle, the middle ground is what I'm trying to say is that it was about 16.5 million. That's very close. It was 17.4 million. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I got yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, 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 of the cool. false pretense <laughs> for the canal. When all was said and done in 1832, remember 1832 was when they completed it. 1827 was when they actually started. Um, so five year difference there. The total cost was eight hundred and three thousand seven hundred and seventy four pounds. So then that's that is thirty million. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. I'll be I'll stop now. I'm done. Okay. I'll give you the answer. Oh. Okay. It is one hundred and forty one. Point six million dollars Canadian, almost five Jesus. times the original <laughs> estimate. And while he was ultimately cleared of wrongdoing, Colonel Lieutenant By, Lieutenant Colonel By, was disgraced and received no recognition or even payment for his work. Well, how long was he there and 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 overseeing this project? Five and a half years. That's fucked. In a different country. In a very in a different undeveloped country, well, he went there and it was a wilderness and running an operation with two to four thousand men and founding an entire town. It, it, uh, and remember that this canal included forty-seven uh, locks, locks, fifty-two, 52 dams, dams, two hundred and two kilometers all the way to Kingston. all the way to Kingston. And no payment. No payment after five and a half years. And he had to bring in people from literally another country. Yes. Yes. So with his legacy and even his strong box still residing in the commissariat today, some say his ghost still lingers, not in England, but at the still waters of the Rideau Canal at the museum for the town he himself built. Fuck yeah, I'd also haunt the shit out of that place. Goddamn right, and I would also initially haunt the shit out of the person who voided my fucking checks. So, maybe, when this spirit overheard McNabb once again getting recognition in the building dedicated to all of his accomplishments, he decided to change the conversation. Without warning, the woman's computer flickered and then the screen went black. Oh, God. Thinking it was just a surge or unexpected error, the woman simply pressed the power button to turn it back on. Only, when the computer booted up, her screen remained black, except for the words, Lieutenant Colonel John By. You know what? Which appeared over and over again across her screen. Like it's fucking jack in the shining yes and you know what this is she did not forward her chain mail yeah that's true that's exactly <laughs> what it did yeah. that's fucking terrifying right it, it literally is it, it, it's like wendy rolling up on jack's creepy ass writing and it's just the same thing over and over and over, over again and over oh and over God. again after all these years and his subordinate taking all the credit 
for the work he did. I think maybe he had enough. I think so as well. All right. He was like, I mowed my dues. Yeah. Let's move on. Oh, okay. Let's move on. Let's change things up, shall we? So we've explored a little bit about Parliament Hill's strange history before it was Parliament Hill. It's long running curse on the land, the souls forgotten beneath its soil, and some of the founding spirits who still wander its structures today. But what about people who don't just stumble upon a paranormal encounter, but actively go searching for them? Oh. And what if that person not only tried to contact spirits, but would also confide in them and even ask them for important advice on things like their personal life while they tried to manage other consuming tasks, like, say, leading an entire country. This is a Ghost Adventures episode. Zach Baggins, baby. (laughs) Believe it or not, that person would be Canada's 10th and longest-serving Prime Minister. Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) Buy my crystal skull vodka. (laughs) No, it would actually be William Lyon Mackenzie King. Oh, shit, yeah. yeah. He's doing a seance or two. Yeah. He um, racked up a total of 21 years as Canada's Prime Minister and led the country through the Great Depression and the Second World War. Yeah, he did. I didn't put this in my notes, but I was like, talk about it. The 21 (laughs) years for our American friends who go like, Jesus Christ, like we get four and that's it. What the hell are you doing? Or eight and that's it. What the hell are you doing? Yeah, we don't get get that. You can reelect, reelect, reelect. Yeah. Keep doing it. So these are three non-consecutive terms as being prime minister. So, yes, you know. In well, the 20s and two then, of them were, yeah. right? Yes. He did so, two, conse- two consecutive. Well, and he then... technically, he went to the governor general and asked, oh God. Okay, I'll he went, stop He talking. went to our governor general and asked her to dissolve parliament because he was about to lose a vote that would potentially mean that he would have to resign. Uh, and the governor general refused. So then, you know, there was a whole like disband of his par- of his government, but then he won the election. So then it was technically a new government, but it's the same government. So technicality but wins by default Uh, so anyway so yes if you're thinking about it you can definitely think about it as a long stretch from the 20s and then you know after that there was another period there where he was prime minister and it all racked up to 21 years almost 22 actually of being canada's prime minister they apparently really liked him he was really steady but he also had the benefit of being a prime minister during the second world war during the great depression uh, although the Great Depression kind of actually triggered like his he election, that a benefit. Well, tra- <laughs> tragedy or well, cr- crisis and war typically boost your approval rating. That's true. They're like, listen, we do not need any the, more upheaval. We do not need exactly. any more reform or They're change up Just, for leadership. We need leadership, something steady, something consistent, and normal. Buddy, please don't leave. Well, he's anything but normal. He is. I. I know. A lot about him um, because I did a project and mm-hmm. I got him as my prime minister. So I like really. That's why I was there. really excited when I was doing research into all these weird things going on in Parliament Hill. And like you've heard, we've gone over everything before Parliament Hill. And I was sitting there going, 
Well, what the hell? I yeah, need a totally prime minister. Have gone deeper than I have, so I'm just interested to see. Yeah. What you got to tell well, me about him? Because he's a I bucko that people think pretty... you're gonna fucking love this. To be quite honest, I I'm got a, a great one for you. I I'm actually ready. I actually started reading through this, and and I completely changed my opinion. Okay, well then yeah. let's hear it. Buckaroo. King is lauded as a masterful politician. Masterful. Who is described as masterful? Like kings. Uh, Trent Reznor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go with that. Yeah. In my opinion, he's widely considered <laughs> one of the best prime ministers Canada has ever had. Mm-hmm. Thanks mostly to his focus of Canadian unity, socioeconomic policy an introduction of national social welfare programs there's even a bronze casted statue of him on parliament hill next to the likes of john a and wilford laurier okay now that we've covered that you can take your head off the desk because you're gonna start to drool um (gasps) (laughs) did i wake you up well we have a google class is over we got p next Because now that we've talked about William Lyon Mackenzie King, the renowned prime minister, let's get to know Weird Willie. The occult living, socially inept mama's boy with a penchant for Ouija boards and seances. Told you. Yep. You see, as a skilled politician, King had a lot of allies, but nobody was exactly lining up to be his friend. Mm -hmm. He's characterized as being cold and tactless. And believe me, those were the nice versions of the critiques I found. He never married. And according to some historians, was a regular patron among sex workers based on passages in his diary that he kept from the time he was an undergraduate until just a few days before his death. Who cares? Let him see a sex worker. Yeah. There's a lot of um, sad elements of the story based on that diary. It's already sad because people are reading his diary yeah. and dissecting it like, well never i need you to promise me right now that if i fucking died tomorrow you don't look at my diaries you just burn them funny you say that and yes of course i would thank the you the diary spanned over seven meters long and comprised of over fifty thousand pages is typed. doing that let's lay it out oh this how many meters it is that's so canadian too fucking meters yeah how many meters is this we must know yeah it's uh it's quite a bit and uh it also is the reason we know so much about his celestial endeavors okay well that Um, part is interesting some of the scholars actually one of the scholars i shouldn't say they all just said it at the same time but said this was the most important political document in canadian political history whoa that's a big statement yeah well it was a big fucking diary apparently it's not about politics though if it's someone's fucking diary well it actually kind of was he did talk a lot about it and there is discussion about for example some of his beliefs inflicting with how he interacted with politicians i see what you're saying okay okay in a very double life the private world of Mackenzie King, the author and historian Charles Stacy suggests King was tormented by the sexual urges that drove him to associate with prostitutes. I'm sorry, the language is as it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And by the religious beliefs that told him that associating with prostitutes was sin. There was a war 
raging inside him. Um. Now, I should also mention that other scholars suggest that while the conflict between King's sexual desires and Presbyterian principles were raging, he was in fact in love with his governor general, a married straight man named John <gasps> Buchan, oh. Lord Tweedsmere. Oh. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's actually so sweet. Those who believe this also point to the few friends that he did have, mostly all women. And his mother. And the close relationship he had with his mother, yeah. going as far as to keep a portrait of her fixed above his bed, which... I'll admit that part's a little weird. Above the bed is weird, but if he's not married and he's kind of got his own personal space, then he must maybe just really love his mother. I cannot help but to picture Norman Bates, but... I do have a, a little context that might help for that that we'll get to in a moment. I felt it was important to add these perspectives, though, because it shows that despite being seen as distant, cold tactless and alone well he clearly doesn't fit in with his environment no he doesn't and just to drive the point home he's also a real person with his own internal struggles and a unique way of coping with them as strange and ethereal as we'll soon find out hey man i've always loved the guy Mm -hmm. i i'm all here for it yeah the lengthy diary i mentioned plays an important role in understanding the really real william lyon mackenzie king because before his death, he kept his fascination with spiritualism on the down low. It was only after his death and thanks to the candor of his passages that we learned just how steeped in the otherworldly King really was. I don't want to like step on your toes in any way, but it does make sense. If he's potentially struggling with his sexuality, was not married, was this high profile character and was religious, he is going to have these incredibly complex internal struggles that people in his inner circle and even outer circle could not relate to. So he is going to have a really intense diary. Yeah, actually, uh, there was a part of the quote that I left out initially um, from that scholar, Stacy who said that when that turmoil was coming about between them, she actually said that was going to be the most difficult year of his entire life. Man, we should get Steph to look at his birth chart. Oh, he would be a great one, actually. Really should. Steph, hi. I know you're listening. Can you pull up good old William Lyon Mackenzie King's birth chart for us? Mm -hmm. Thanks, dear. Oh, can you also please figure out what the fuck kind of curse John i had on him holy shit yeah look at his chart too okay because yeah. uh that poor man's whatever aspect he has going on it is not financially yeah, but stable. i heard he's a perfect specimen of the perfect english gentleman he's got a brain in him but uh his pockets are empty there's a lot of talk of his broad shoulders actually yeah, that's hot <laughs> what one of the guys was saying i think <laughs> That was in William Lyon Mackenzie King's diary, wasn't it? He's like, <laughs> you got me. He's like, ugh, those shoulders, my man. <laughs> could build a canal between those shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a piggyback, sir. <laughs> Take me to Kingston. <laughs> okay, sorry. All right. Sorry. Oh. Okay, by his own account, King believed that his dead loved ones literally hovered around him cute and that the hands on a clock for example might be a communication from the divine providence it's just a squad it's just a what it's a squad it's a squad 
It's his squad. It's, you know, it's his, his posse. It's his homies. Yeah, he's and with little, the boys. Well, props give me a high five, and it's like the clock just goes to 12. <laughs> <laughs> when King died, most all knew him for the careful and steady-handed statesman. But there's something called the 30-year rule in the United Kingdom and its Commonwealth that dictates certain government documents become publicly available after 30 years. So after his death, come 1980s, the secret was out and the revered politician who kept a close guard on his private life was quickly overshadowed by an unhinged, small-minded politician who consulted with spiritual mediums. Oh, that's really harsh. Mm-hmm. In short order, the public heard it all. He was on frequent speaking terms with his dead parents and siblings. He took advice from ghosts of Sir Wilfrid Laurier and William Gladstone and FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He found comfort in sex work, sex workers, not sex work, <laughs> as an undergrad. He studied the patterns in his shaving cream for their political omens. And so he, people literally read tea leaves. And he even channeled his dead dog, Pat. That's fine. That is okay. For the public, though, it was jaw-dropping as it was alarming. As Charlotte Gray put in her article, Haunted by Weird Willie, the <laughs> remarkable afterlife of our strangest PM and what we want from politicians. At the end of the day, how long did he reign? Years and years. Years and so years. Who fucking cares how he managed to do it? People liked him. Mm -hmm. But once the secret was out, the question became inevitable. Did the Prime Minister take direction from the dead when making crucial decisions? Remember, this was the guy who got everyone through World War II. And the Great Depression. Yeah. Was he guided by his officials or by irrational omens? How weird was Weird Willie? Well, um... He would sit down with a sex worker and talk to his dead dog. And I don't see a problem with that. The weirdest thing was he just paid him to hold hands. Oh! Like, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's we... not real, but that's sad. A, and he I'll would do that. I'll give you $100 to spoon me. <laughs> he just needed a hug. Just don't mention my crying, okay? He puts a little handkerchief over his mother's photo. Mm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Isn't it above the bed? It is above the bed. Hang Mother, above the bed. Mother, don't watch me spoon. Mother. Mother. <laughs> it's weird, Willie. <laughs> all right. Well, naturally, King wasn't able to hide all of this until just now. But he was able to keep things quiet enough to prevent it from becoming public knowledge, which is exactly the amount you want to be able to keep something quiet when you're a politician. In fact, it only took a few days for some of his staff to come forward to press about his odd habits after his death. Wow. I know. People have big mouths. They had known all along, even if King didn't know it. But fortunately, <laughs> the coverage never caused much of a stir. I assume it's because it was overshadowed by the fact that the one of the most revered politicians just passed away. JFK? Nixon. Oh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> think he's dead yet. <laughs> However, one journalist, Blair Fraser, took this as an opportunity to interview two of the mediums who King visited for several years in Britain. 
again, I have to remind you, Canada was part of the Commonwealth of Britain. We weren't sovereign yet at this time. We weren't independent of Britain. What he learned from these interviews was perhaps the closest we will come to understanding the driving force behind King's strange spiritual fixations. I gotta warn you in advance, it does pull on your heartstrings a little bit. Oh god, all of this already has. This is a quote from one of the mediums. Quote, What he wanted from a medium and what he normally got was intimate converse with his own family. Like so many others, Mackenzie King became interested in spiritualism because he was lonely and a sorely bereaved man. The mother to whom he was remained devoted, his, devo- his beloved brother McDougal King, the doctor, his favorite sister Isabel, all died in a few years. His bereavement was sharpened by the thought that he had not been, been at his mother's deathbed. At her insistence, he had gone back to his 1917 election campaign in North York, which is in Ontario, leaving her mortally ill. She was dead when he returned. Oh, what? And, McKin- and Mr. King never quite forgave himself for this. End quote. Fraser then asked the important question. Did King seek political advice through seances with the dead? And admittedly, the answer makes this story wholly tragic quote it was as if he had his mother living over here in britain what would any son do if he came over on business he'd look her up he'd want to see her and talk to her he didn't want her advice on public affairs for he knew more about them than she did he wanted to know how she was end quote The closest to a political advice King had ever sought from these spirits was, in fact, the choice to leave it. Oh. As his health began to deteriorate, the medium gave him this message. This is the medium again. His mother told him he was doing too much. His heart wouldn't stand it. He took her advice in the end, but it was not soon enough. End quote. That's because... He also received conflicting advice from the ghost of Franklin Delano Roosevelt what during one he... of King's trips to Britain. What does he even have to do with it? They were apparently quite close. But, um, okay. but he, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, urged him. He was like, why am I not on Mount Rushmore? He said, why am I not on Mount Rushmore? Get me back there. Are you fine? Wait, Franklin Roosevelt's on Mount Rushmore, right? Delano Roosevelt? Oh, it might be Teddy. No, I think it's Franklin. Oh, shit. It's probably Teddy. Oh, maybe it's Teddy. Well. Anyway. Get me on there. Are you fine? Anyway. Are you fine? He also said, don't retire. Stay on the job. Your country needs you there. But after King returned to Canada, the medium got another message and was prompt to relay it back to Ottawa. Whether through a change of heart or paranormal epiphany, the ghost of FDR was urging him to call it quits. So, do you want to know what one of these seances looked like? Well, obviously. All right, well, King did occasionally meet up with a medium named Miss... I'm going to call her Wright. It's spelled W-R-I-E-D-T. 
um, oh. who uh, was apparently left quite an impression on him at their first session. Miss Wright would begin her session by playing a silver trumpet and then placing it in a circle among her guests. She would then spin the trumpet, yes, exactly like spin the bottle, and whoever it pointed to was about to receive a message from the other side. On his first session with Miss Wright, he spoke with his brother about their time as children. Then, nearing the end of the session, Miss Wright says, Your sister's here, and she has a beautiful dog with her. The dog doesn't seem to have been very long over there. Which means the dog had Recent, new, recently, recently died. Passed, yeah. This amazed King. He tells her the night before his dog passed away, his watch fell off his bedside table for no apparent reason. In the morning, he found it face down on the floor with the hands stopped at 20 minutes past four. He took this as a message. His dog would die before another 24 hours passed. No. Sure enough, that night, Pat got out of his basket, climbed onto King's bed, and died there. King looked at his watch. 420? It's 20 past 4. Oh! Remember, he got to talk to his dog at the other side. I know, but oh. The other mediums King frequented would practice what is known as automatic writing, meaning the message would come through the mediums in written form. Some stay alert when this happens, while others claim to go into an unconscious or trance-like state. King's habit was to take these messages page by page and read them for himself. Then, and only then, after he had taken these copies and written his comments, would he send it back to the medium to read. Wow. Yeah. He took it very personally. Well, clearly. Yeah. Now, one thing that Charlotte Gray noticed in her article is that in the 1990s, something begins to shift in the public's view of politics. For one, we see the rise of gotcha journalism, the constant manufactured scandal after scandal. Mm -hmm. We have John F. Kennedy's affairs. We have Pierre Trudeau's divorce. We have Brian Mulroney's kickback scheme and the infamous Watergate. Yep. Suddenly, people start getting used to the idea that their politicians are not these sanitized caricatures in a perfect world. They're flawed, all of them. And at a time when the division in politics was particularly fierce, they oddly began to revere the socially challenged politician with a strange fixation on the dead as what he was, a dedicated leader who sought to bring Canadians together and see them through some of the hardest times the country has ever faced. Sure, he may be weird, Willie, but... Damn it, he's our weird Willie. He is. Yeah. And that concludes the stories that I brought to you today. Save? Fair Chateau Fairmont. That is correct. So one small fun little tidbit that I have is that the Chateau Fairmont, which, by the way, is just on the other side of the canal, which is just adjacent to Barrick Hill. So it is very much in close proximity to the lands. It is actually 
if we're going back to the Algonquin camp that we talked about. Oh god, yeah, how can I forget? On the left side, on the west, was the bluff of Barrick Hill. Mm -hmm. Well, just as close, but on the east side, was the Chateau Fermont. Okay. Okay, so it's just on the other side of the now Rideau Canal. When they were building the Chateau Fairmont, it was being built by the president of the Grand Trunk Railway. And 12 days before he got to see the opening of the Chateau Fairmont, mm -hmm. he drowned on the Titanic. What the fuck? You bring Titanic into this yeah. just when it could not get any more strange. Super strange. And they say that the ghost of, of this man haunts the Chateau Fairmont. And oddly enough, everyone keeps coming back saying, it seemed like a positive energy. Wow. Yeah, which was weird because they say that he's just watching over his hotel, just kind making, of sure that it, making sure that it runs well. It's just like a really connected landlord. <laughs> yeah, he's just, you know, he saw a well, um, broken wall and he painted it white. <laughs> he saw a red door and he wanted it painted black yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, when was the chateau fermont built so it's actually called the fairmont chateau laurier and construction occurred between 1909 and 1912 okay yeah okay and um yeah so before he yeah. ever got to see any of yeah. this. And one of his, one of the other ghosts said to um, haunt the place was one of his subordinates who actually survived the Titanic. Wow. But died um, just about a year or so later. Uncool. And some say out of guilt. I really doubt it. No. But they say that he haunts the place as well. Well, I mean, who are we to say? Yeah, exactly. I just think it sucks that you survived the fucking titanic sinking <laughs> and you did die later yeah a year later yeah of unrelated causes i'm sure yeah wow mm -hmm. i um would like to go to ottawa despite all of these terrifying things mm -hmm. i think that as i'm falling asleep tonight i'm gonna have incredibly terrifying visions of this poor uh, algonquin girl algonquin it was algonquin, algonquin yeah this poor algonquin girl I cannot get the image out of my head of her being just essentially like javelined. Yeah. Just into the stump and just sitting there and her mother instantly knowing something's wrong because her hair is blowing in the wind. And I'm just like, oh, God, that is just such a nightmare. Yeah. That is so fucking well, scary. I did also have uh, a few stories that I didn't get to cover because it's not really on Parliament Hill. It's more of an Ottawa story, although the assassination did occur on a street very close to Parliament Hill. What is that? There just really isn't a ghost story there. It's uh, actually an assassination is just as creepy. Yeah. What was so, it? So remember when I talked about the Bytown Museum? I couldn't could not forget. And I also and Duncan got all of the notoriety. And I also talked about the death hand. Yeah. Of an MPP named Darcy McGee. I was going to ask about that. You said there was like the death hand of someone who was assassinated there. Yeah. So he 
was a politician who actually was from Ireland at the time, and oh, he so came he was over. One of those workers. He, I think he did stem from the family, <laughs> yeah. And um, he became known for writing about an idea of making Canada more independent, but still under the purview of the British government. And a lot of the Irish at the time, remember I said that there were the Shiners and there was this whole underbelly of Irish community and a bit of violence going on because of the oppression that they had. Well, they saw Darcy McGee as a traitor. So when he stayed at Parliament after an extended session, he walked across the street to where he was actually living on April 6th, 1868, shortly after 1 a.m. When the caretaker of the building came downstairs to let him in, she was blinded by a flashing white light. Oh my. She looked down to her dress to find it spattered with blood. (gasps) Oh no. Darcy McGee had been assassinated, shot in the back of the head. Someone followed him. The first Canadian politician to ever be assassinated. Now, after a very lengthy trial, they would then find James Patrick Wellen to be the culprit. He was adamant about being innocent till the very end oh. when he was brought to the Ottawa jail. Was he hanged? And hanged. Yeah. He's said to still haunt the jail. What do you think? Do you know any more history about it? Do you think he's innocent or do you think he just didn't want? Does that look like an innocent face to you? Well, it looks like Will Ferrell without a mustache, just a beard. <laughs> Honestly, I really can't say. it. It does just kind of boil down to it. But there was... Is he Irish? Yes. And they would also mention that some of the... Well, a lot of the trial had uh, political pressure placed on it, including coming from the prime minister. And it's the first time a politician was assassinated, so God knows what sort of Mm -hmm. standards there are, um, procedures to take. Yeah, they weren't fucking around. Someone had to pay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's... also, that poor woman that answered that just answered the door. She's like, "The fuck! I was supposed to be off today. I'm just mm-hmm. filling in." Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and she's like, "Get up at one a.m., be nice about it, and then bam, bullet to the head." But yeah, that's the stories I brought for you today. I loved all of them, especially Wild Wild Willie or Weird Willie. I really did like Weird Willie. I thought I was gonna stop after the Rideau Canal story started fading away but then i was like hell no we need a we need a prime minister on the yeah on the pod willy i think if oh just to me it sounds like weird willy might have been struggling with complications of the religion he wanted to follow but having an incredibly like inner conflict and confusion with sexuality Mm -hmm. and yeah just a lot and then thinking about the time he was raining and and there was uh, a lot of uh the the reason they thought that he was frequenting sex workers i looked at some of the quotes to see why they might think that and obviously in the diary it's vague 
but it keeps talking about sin and him leaving somewhere and then returning that night and feeling an incredible amount of guilt and oppression from sin. And so interpreters at the time just, I think they just assumed it meant uh, sex workers, but he also did have this weird kind of um, thing about talking to sex workers. And I, it seemed like he was trying to like, yeah, but get maybe them off the street and stuff. Maybe but, it doesn't even have anything to do with sex workers. If you're a heavily, heavily religious person and a politician, and you are somebody who believes in the other side, believes in these seances, believes in this other sort of spiritual world, that in itself could be sinful. Mm-hmm. Or if maybe he liked to hit the sauce or something, that could be sinful. It really did seem and to me that he was I just, just don't want to focus at all on the sex work because like who fucking cares no but what my <laughs> point was i think that that's where they got that from yeah but I, I, know. I think yeah. you can actually probably take a new approach to that a, a lot of people have have looked at that and reassessed it and their interpretation is he was just gay yeah maybe he was yeah and who fucking cares? It would be yeah. devastating to be in his shoes and, and be someone who knows for sure I am a gay man. He's yet... a weird willy. <laughs> and you know what? Weird willy, willy is the top three prime ministers of all time. Speaking rated of top. In the 90s, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Is he a top or a bottom? And he's a willy? top because you know why? His statue is at the top of Parliament Hill. Cute. Yeah. Just... Like I said, he, he is right next to... Uh, uh, John A. I want to go to Parliament Hill. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Great job. Thank you. You want to lead us out? Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. I had a blast. I hope all of you enjoyed this. He said he's going to do episode 20, and he did episode 20. Hell yeah. He delivered. Everyone likes a good spooky story once in a while to change things up. Yeah. That's so, my specialty, baby. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure that you follow us on Instagram, Dark Adaptation Podcast, on Twitter, Dark Adapt Pod. We are on Facebook. We've got a website, darkadaptationpodcast.ca. Mm-hmm. And wherever you're listening, be sure to rate us if it's possible. Leave a review if you feel so inclined. Do it for Weird Willie. Do it for Weird Willie. Do it for us. Yeah. You're here. You're listening. You like the show, obviously. You're back. Come on, man. Do it. There's stars. Fuck you. <laughs> and then next week, make sure you join us when I take over again as host. Yeah. Assume my usual role and uh, deliver you a fucked up story about um, <laughs> Crazy Joe Naso. Naso. I'm pretty sure it's Naso. Maybe I'll give that a quick Google. Anyway, thank you so much for your kind words, your encouragement. We love you. And we'll catch you on the dark side. Bye. They both had a porcelain doll collection. They made the penises kiss. Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. And 
Now you're gonna tell us this. <laughs> Mwah. Mwah. This is the story of Brokeback Canal. <laughs> Brokeback Canal. <laughs> Brokeback Bye. Oh, that's what you meant by bye. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Get out! Get out.